Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. In today's podcast, Dr. Gary Groman will comment on two different issues. He will look at why the occurrence of COVID-19 in minks is such a big issue. And then Dr. Groman will comment on the much publicized news article that reports the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine could be 90% effective in stopping coronavirus transmission. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Gary Grohlman. Dr. Grohlman, Please tell us about yourself. Uh, hello, David. Yes, I, I've worked for the Therapeutic Goods Administration for 17 years in the area of vaccines. And then after that, had four years at the World Health Organization doing very similar things with uh, vaccine and health. Now, Gary, last Wednesday, the Danish Prime Minister uh, basically said that the country's mink uh, industry would be pretty much decimated by culling all the mink uh, because of fears that a COVID-19 mutation uh, that was found in a mink could move from the minks to humans and possibly jeopardize future vaccines. So why does this mutation have us so worried? The concern is that the mutation is at the spike protein near the receptor binding domain and that uh, if a mutation occurs there, then the fear has always been that that will compromise any vaccines made. And on top of that, it would create possibly a new wave or outbreaks in humans. So that's been generally the fear when it comes to mutations back into the animal world. So it's basically it's been near or at the spike protein that makes it different. Yes, that's right. And that's the mutation that people keep looking for in a Gizay databases and other databases, they keep looking for mutations in that receptor binding domain and spike protein area. Mm-hmm. Because when there are mutations there, then it will avoid a new virus or a virus with a new mutation in that spot will simply avoid the uh, immune response. And that's the difficulty. Speaking of mutations, Gary, uh, is it true that the most dominant uh, mutation currently in the world is the G mutation? It seems to be highly infective. Is it true also that the mortality rates are not as high? Yes, so we've seen this again and again with a lot of viruses. So as they proceed in a pandemic one wave after another over time, um, the severity actually becomes less because they're mutating more towards an equilibrium state. And even though the virus is still infectious and highly infectious and all precautions need to be taken, but you see that severity in terms of hospitalizations and deaths Uh, actually starts to decrease. And this is a common observation with a lot of pandemics. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of us could think that if the mutation 
near the spike protein can occur in minks, then other animals as well uh, can potentially be reservoirs where mutations can occur. So how can we monitor these species, both farmed and wild? Right. So if we deal with minks first, the ACE2 receptor in minks is a little bit different to that in a human. Uh, so it's unlikely that when it goes, say, to minks in this case, or even to other animals, and this would include cats and dogs, but I'll talk to them in a moment. When that happens, it, it will certainly be rampant, say, in this case, in minks, mm -hmm. and particularly because they're all in a closed community setting being farmed. Mm -hmm. So they will spread very easily from one animal to another. Uh, but then the chances of it coming back to a human is pretty low. Now, I know 12 people have been infected, but fortunately it's not serious disease, mm -hmm. and that can be controlled only by culling the minks. Uh, so unfortunately, the Denmark, I think, is culling over 17 million of the animals. Uh, that in, and also the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, Italy, and the US are all culling their minks because it's simply too dangerous to have them in a farm setting where a virus can easily spread from animal to animal and possibly create new mutations. So that's the right thing to do. Now, just by compa uh, for comparison, we did exactly the same thing in 1997 in Hong Kong when bird flu appeared. Uh, and, and the same thing in Indonesia. Lots of animals were culled to make sure that bird flu H5N1 didn't spread within animals to create more mutations and disease, but also from animal to human. So it's the right approach is uh, culling, widespread culling of the animals. And, and while that's unfortunate, and the animals and the farmers and so on in the industry, uh, nevertheless, it has to be done uh, to protect the human population. So that's going on now in half a dozen or so countries at the moment that have large numbers of minks and mink farms. Mm -hmm. Now, with regard to other animals, that's a good question. So we do know that this coronavirus can infect, for example, cats and dogs, but they're not in the same situation. You don't get farms full of dogs and cats. I mean, you do get catteries and so on where cats are minded. So they're a little bit of a danger, but you're not having hundreds of thousands of animals on a farm. Uh, so it's unlikely to spread <clears throat> between domestic animals. And there's no evidence at all. I'd like to assure everyone, no evidence at all uh, of the virus coming back from animals back to humans. That doesn't mean it can't be a reservoir, but at the moment it's not coming back to humans. It's extremely unlikely because of contact and so on with uh, the animal. Uh, so um, we've not seen that, even though we know that certain zoo animals have been affected, domestic dogs and cats can be infected. Uh, weasels like ferrets and mink are highly susceptible um, and they can be used as laboratory animals and are um, uh, for the study of the virus. Uh, but it's very unlikely it will come back from animals to humans at this time. There's no evidence for that. And we've had a bit of time to assess that evidence. But it does highlight the importance yet, yet again, as I've spoken about before on the program, is the importance of the animal-human interface. Mm -hmm. We have to be so careful um, and study further the animal-human interface and really try and understand uh, what human viruses and animal viruses, you know, what is actually circulating in those populations and can they cross over the species barrier uh, to infect a human or from a human to an animal. Now, Gary, just to make things a little bit harder for you, um, I've just read in The Guardian that 
Denmark has now decided not to cull the Mings. Uh, one of the people speaking basically said that the order was illegal and that Sweden has also decided not to cull because they said that these animals are going to be killed anyway. So amazingly, um, they are not doing it. Well, if they do that, then they'll have to put a, a ring of steel, so to speak, to use a Victorian term, around that particular farm. And the humans involved, and hopefully there are very, very few mm -hmm. who are farming the animals, will have to be extremely careful and wear PPE and so on. Right. Because there is definitely a danger there. I mean, we've already got 12 people ill uh, from animals, so there is definitely a danger there. Okay. Something to keep an eye on, is it? Yes. Oh, definitely. And I, I think it's uh, very risky. I mean, it's a fair enough argument economically to say, well, in due course, they're being culled anyway, but then they have to absolutely make sure that there's a ring of steel around them so other animals don't get infected. The virus will run right through mm. Uh, mm. the animal po population itself. Mm. But if only, well, 12 humans have been infected, and that seems to me to be a fairly high number. I don't know how many people work on the farm, but the fact mm. that humans have been infected from an animal virus is clearly quite serious and those that have been infected have been isolated mm. and their families would have to be isolated in contacts uh, to make sure it doesn't get, get back into the human population. There is a uh, danger that the virus in humans from minks um, might escape uh, any vaccine or current treatments. We, we just don't know, but particularly the vaccine, it, it might escape uh, the effect of any putative vaccine that might be used in the future. Gary, I was just going to say that there's a big difference between culling an animal and then killing it and then skinning it, which makes it an even higher risk procedure with lots of blood around the place, wouldn't it? Well, the, um, uh, certainly the fecal matter and uh, respiratory matter, the body fluids basically will be potentially infectious. Uh, so they would have to do that in a more precautionary way. What okay. that is, I'm not sure. I'm not an, an expert in mink farming mm. uh, and getting pelts. But uh, I, I think I would have to be extremely careful and wear good PPE and have some procedures in place to minimise aerosols and, and have very good environmental cleanup procedures because it is obviously uh, a danger. But that will be up to uh, the farms involved. But presumably they'll be aware of that and the various departments of health and also agricultural departments will be able to give them good advice, I hope. Otherwise, we might see another outbreak. Gary, I certainly hope not. Uh, what is the take-home message from this issue? Well, I think the take-home message is there's no need for great concern. The situation is under control, uh, either through culling or through awareness and proper practices. And uh, there's very little chance of this creating another outbreak that we've seen from, say, China and then to the rest of the world. There's no fear of that at all. Uh, it's been um, assessed very carefully. The genetic sequences are up there and so on. So we know what we're dealing with, and I think appropriate measures have gone into place to stop any further spread. Thank you, Gary. Now, we have all woken up to the message that Pfizer says that their COVID-19 vaccine may be 90% effective. First of yeah. all, what sort of vaccine is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine? So um, it's very uh, good that uh, they have uh, released some data, but I think it's important to understand the data is very, very early. Uh, and they've only 
also looked at a small um, a grouping with, within that data set. So it's very difficult to know what's, you know, what, what the data actually means, so to speak. And I, I, I think uh, we just need to uh, wait and see the whole data set in due course. So I don't want to be negative in any way to it because it's quite exciting news that they've got some data, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and that is excellent. Uh, but I, I just wonder uh, if we shouldn't really just be a little more circumspect and, and be a little more careful about, about the data and wait for a publication and in particular peer review. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, extremely important. Now, uh, having said all that, it's important to understand that it's only 90 or so uh, people that they've uncoded. Um, it's a very small number compared to the thousands involved in the study. Uh, so I think uh, that's, that's important to understand. We also don't know what age groups are involved there, and, and they are presumably age groups uh, that are healthy between mm -hmm. 18 and 55. Uh, so we don't know much about that either. It is a messenger RNA vaccine, as probably we all know. I mean, it's made by two great companies uh, combining Germany and the, U and the USA, so there'll be regulatory confidence there in terms of the ability for this company uh, to do good studies, uh, report well, and also produce large amounts of vaccine, probably by the end of 2021, you'll get a trickle on the way. But in terms of large uh, numbers, like hundreds of millions of doses, then that really won't happen until towards the end of 2021. So there's still a little bit of um, precautionary waiting here, I think, for this vaccine and also the other three or four that will come online as weeks go by in November. We should get um, data from three or four other vaccine manufacturers as well, and then we'll uh, take it all from there. But it does need to be published, needs to be peer-reviewed and, and very importantly reviewed by regulators and then approved. And all this will take time. So if approval comes along, say from the FDA in this case, by February or March, uh, some vaccine, small amounts of vaccine will probably be made. I think they're saying they can make 25 million doses by around about March. So if that's approved, that can be released. Um, and then it'll take probably towards the end of 2021 before they have a few hundred million uh, doses that can then be distributed. So one issue in the distribution will be uh, the logistics because these vaccines, mRNA vaccines, need to be frozen uh, and uh, it'll be important for uh, countries that are going to use this vaccine to get all the logistics in place that require transportation of frozen vaccine. And it's normally frozen at minus 80 and I'm not sure what happens when you freeze it at minus 20 and then distribute how much of the material you actually lose. So the shelf life will be important to work out as well. So, you know, everyone's quietly confident and hopeful, of course, but um, they're, they're claiming effectiveness, but that can't be true. I mean, it, it is efficacy that they're talking about, and it's efficacy in a very small number. So I think all those things need to be understood. Gary, for the sake of our listeners, can you once again uh, tell us the difference between efficacy and effectiveness? Efficacy is a controlled study. It's done under ideal circumstances. The setting is basically ideal. 
And also the people in the study are highly selected. It's a homogeneous population and it does have uh, a number of exclusion criteria. But when you come to effectiveness, this is the real life study. This is the study in the field after all the approvals have been done and so on. Um, so the question is a bit different. It's not the question of does this intervention work under ideal circumstances. The question is, does the intervention work in real world, in real world practice? Mm. Uh, so the setting is now the real world. It's not a controlled clinical setting in any way. Mm. Um, and the study is now heterogeneous population. And there are no exclusion criteria unless they're to do with allergies. But um, there are no exclusion criteria unless they're set by the regulator. They might identify allergies or certain people with comorbidities, or they may exclude paediatric to start with, which they will do in this case. But we won't know about effectiveness until later. Now, normally, um, you know, if you look at it step by step, the most controlled thing you can do is to do studies in animals and you determine immunogenicity and pathology and so on, and toxicity. And then you go to phase one where you do initial safety an immunogenicity test. In phase two, you're doing a proper immunogenicity test, but that just tells you about antibodies and T cells. Yeah. It doesn't really tell you about efficacy. So in your phase three, where you've got a randomized control group, uh, or trial, I should say, with a control group and a vaccine group, then you can determine efficacy because they're exposed in the community quite naturally to the coronavirus and you can determine efficacy. Of course, the larger the number, the better. And more importantly, you can determine safety and some rare safety events, particularly in a cohort of 40,000 people or so. That's excellent. But for effectiveness, you know, in the real world, you are letting it go without any controls at all. Mm. And normally what happens is that uh, if efficacy is, say, 80 or 90%, as is being claimed now, then the effectiveness will be less than that. Mm. So we see this with influenza. Uh, immunogenicity, big tick. Uh, efficacy, not too bad at 70 or 80% in randomized control studies. But effectiveness in the real world is only about 40 or 50%, depending on the strain that's circulating. So I would expect effectiveness to be somewhere, hopefully, uh, between 50 and 80%, but um, usually it'll be down at the lower end of that. But let's hope it is higher than that. And if it is, then, of course, having an effect scene having an effective vaccine will be just fantastic. But we'll have to wait and see. We've also got Novavax and AstraZeneca coming online with data towards the end of the month uh, and a few other companies as well. So uh, we'll, ju we'll just have to wait and see. Lovely. I have a question here. You've just told us that the mRNA vaccines need to be frozen to at least minus 20. Now, in Australia, that would mean that all the GPs will be taken out of the equation because our cold chain does not actually take into account frozen vaccines. So we're going to have a massive logistic problem here. Well, it's something that, that I'm sure people are thinking about. I mean, in a place like the US, for example, the problem's even greater. But, uh, you know, to transport frozen material is certainly not impossible, and people do it all the time with foods and so on. But uh, it's very, pretty important to begin with to have it at minus 80. This is because of RNAs. The enzyme is ubiquitous in the environment and is impossible to remove. So RNAs uh, will chop up RNA, obviously. So it's quite important to keep it frozen as long as possible. Mm. Uh, and then I'm not sure, I haven't seen the data on 
what happens when you bring it from minus 80 to minus 20 and then from minus 20 to four degrees and then room temperature, what mm. the effect is on the actual material. Uh, so uh, that data needs to be released, obviously, by the companies in due course, and that's, that will determine the shelf life. So if it arrives frozen, then it might be able to be kept at minus 20 for a while and then thawed out that day, but then all of it would have to be used, I presume. So you probably have vaccination days or vaccination campaigns in your GP office to uh, give people the vaccine. And if GP office happen to have a nurse on, on board um, or, or a health provider on board, uh, then maybe they could specifically uh, simply give out the vaccine at, at that particular time. So it will require a lot of organisation to ensure that it gets, once it gets to four degrees and then the temperature that it's used straight away. Gary, you've also told us that several vaccines uh, will be reporting their phase three trial results shortly, but Australia has just committed a lot of money uh, with the Oxford Seneca uh, vaccine and CSIRO in preparing for the manufacture of the one vaccine. Are we putting a lot of money and too many eggs in one basket? Uh, I, my understanding was the government has actually signed a few contracts now with different companies to avoid that scenario of putting too many eggs in one basket and one of them um, failing for some reason or not being approved. And I think that's very wise. And I think the government here is also looking at uh, Australian vaccines as well. So there's a UQ-CSL combination, for, for example, and others, I might add. So it's the um, combination of universities with manufacturers and then government uh, contracts um, that need to be in place. And I think that's happening. I think there are three or four contracts now in place mm -hmm. from the federal government. So it is important, I agree with you completely, not to have all your eggs in one basket when it comes to vaccine. You need several uh, manufacturers providing the vaccine because it's quite possible that during the process of manufacture that something will go wrong and if or, or there's a delivery issue or whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, so it is important to have at least two manufacturers on board for any particular vaccine uh, to make sure that there is supply um, without going into whether one is more efficacious than another or safer than another all that data will come out in time and it might take years for that to come out. Obviously, you want the most efficacious and or most effective and the safest, but you may not have that data for a while. So there's no point in comparing one company to another from that point of view. Uh, it is important to make sure that you have several suppliers. And I think, I think Australia's in a good position there. Fabulous. So with regards to today's headlines, we take it with a grain of salt and a bit of hope. Well, I think you have to be careful with any headline. There's, you know, the problem with the headline is that every manufacturer, without criticising them, but every manufacturer will put a very positive spin on their product. Uh, and that's fine. But uh, from a scientific and medical point of view, you need to really look at the whole data set, uh, look at the published data, uh, look at the peer review comments, and then look at the regulatory input and comments and hopefully final approval. You know, this is the right process. So the sort of knee-jerk reaction from a headline is a bit unfortunate because we just don't really know how it's going to work out. Looking at a small subset of patients is interesting, but looking at the whole data set would give you clearly a lot more confidence about safety, efficacy, and then later on in time, when it's actually being used in the field, 
then we will get effectiveness data. It's wrong for anyone to claim effectiveness at this point because that's simply not true. What they're talking about is efficacy. Gary, this made it very clear. Now, do you have any other final take-home messages for us regarding this issue? Well, I, I think something we all have to remember, David, is that even if we get a vaccine, no matter how finally effective it will be, and hopefully it will be, and it will be used, but we still will have to be careful in terms of making sure we wear masks and practising distancing and hand-washing and so on. Uh, all those practices still need to remain. And I think we need to remind the community of that. And that's something obviously that GPs and allied health communities can do very effectively. That is, and, and practice it themselves as well to be the example. And it's really important to continuously be aware. Even if a vaccine is so-called effective in the sense that it stops severity and stops people from going uh, into hospital, uh, and reduces the mortality rate. They're all very big ticks for any vaccine, of course. But it may not stop infection at the subclinical level. And we need to keep being careful of that. So uh, it's quite possible, as we know, to get a virus and have a subclinical infection, excrete the virus in body fluids and pass it on to others, and we may not even know about it. So if we get the vaccine, we might think we are protected, but we have to keep being aware of others. And if we are asymptomatic, either because of the vaccine or just because we are asymptomatic, then uh, it's still possible to pass on infectious virus. So all those restrictions, even through a vaccination campaign, I believe should be maintained for some time. And we keep reminding people of infectious diseases in general anyway and how they're passed on. And a nice piece of evidence uh, which would suggest we should maintain this, is that uh, diseases like pertussis and influenza, uh, norovirus, enteric virus infections have all been reduced markedly. And um, that just shows you how effective good practices in the community uh, can be. Uh, so I think, you know, that that's an important message to keep up, that people should maintain their awareness, particularly as restrictions come off in the community. I am so glad you mentioned that, Gary, because even right now in Sydney, um, masks, the use of masks is becoming much less frequent. That's number one. And number two is that I fear that the coming summer might lull us into huge congregations uh, as it did in the Northern Hemisphere. And of course, my big concern is that somehow that might lead to another wave coming through. So are those fears founded or unfounded? Well, they're totally founded. I mean, we've seen it in the Northern Hemisphere that uh, complacency has led to a second wave. And the second wave is, is always larger than the first. And we have gone from hundreds of thousands of cases earlier this year to 40 million. Uh, this is what can happen with complacency. And uh, it's very, very important to lock down in the beginning. Uh, then after that, it, there needs to be this social awareness uh, that we've all been practising, and that's so important. And that will keep the numbers very low, controllable, with good contact tracing and so on, is all important. So it's very important to keep signing into restaurants and using your apps to say where you are and who your contacts have been and maintain that one and a half metre distance and wash hands and all these things that we do and screw, you know, cleaning and so on is really, really important. And we need to keep maintaining that 
uh, for some time. And it's a thing worth maintaining anyway in terms of controlling all infectious disease, but in particular this one. So um, we will get a second wave if we are complacent. We need to be careful. Mm. Uh, the virus, you know, is currently endemic in Europe, the UK and the US and most of Asia. Absolutely endemic. So it will be very difficult to control without vaccination, but uh, it can still come back even with vaccination if other measures are not put in place. Keep remembering, you know, I couldn't emphasise it enough. Remember, there's a significant fraction of infection that's asymptomatic that we cannot see. And we, we need to be extremely aware of that fraction, more so almost than the clinical fraction, if the virus is to be stopped. Gary, I really thank you for the very clear explanation and also to reinforce to all of our listeners the importance of no longer, if you like, taking and feeling as if we are free because the newspapers and the way they reports the double donuts make you feel almost as if we've been liberated or freed, that it's all over, uh, but that you are a very important voice of caution to ask us not to take our, if you like, eyes off the important messages, which is to ask our patients and ourselves to observe the personal safety measures. No, I couldn't agree more, David. Thank you so much for that, Gary. And thank you for trying to explain both the mink and that exciting headlines this morning and putting it into perspective. You're welcome, David. You have a great day, Gary. Always great speaking with you. Okay, thank you again. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.